Good morning to everyone in the Diocese of Orange, and welcome to another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. We're coming to you from the campus of Christ Cathedral and Garden Grove through the good offices of Immaculate Heart Radio on AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott. The first topic on the table today, physician-assisted suicide. When many people hear that word, they're likely inclined to think about a person in uncommonly difficult straits, essentially at the end of their rope. But in the case of Brittany Maynard, who was born just up the street from us in Anaheim, uh, we have a young, vital person, a newlywed, uh, with a brain tumor who was given six months to live and chose to end her life before that time was up. She said at the time that, and this is a quote, death with dignity was the best option for me and my family. She called her illness again, quoting, this terrible brain cancer that has taken so much from me but would have taken so much more. She moved from California to Oregon last year because Oregon law permits physician-assisted suicide and California does not, at least not yet. But there is a bill currently before the California legislature that would allow it. Brittany Maynard died last November 1st. Her mother defended her daughter's decision, saying that, quote, my 29-year-old daughter's choice to die gently rather than suffer physical and mental degradation and intense pain does not deserve to be labeled as reprehensible by strangers a continent away who do not know her or the particulars of her situation. We're here in the studio today with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, who is an associate professor of psychiatry and director of the program in medical ethics at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. Also with us here in the studio is Dr. Vincent Wynn, a hospice and palliative care specialist and an associate professor at UCI as well. And joining us on the phone is Tim Rosales, a spokesman for Californians Against Assisted Suicide. Uh, that group is a coalition of disability rights, health care, civil rights, and patient advocacy organizations. Welcome, gentlemen, to all of you. Thank you, Pat. In physician-assisted suicide, we're looking at a real Gordian knot of an issue, are we not? On, on the one hand, it may appeal to our native sense of personal independence and compassion, but on the other hand, we're talking about playing God, and the church's position on this issue is quite clear. Let me ask, first of all, why would people find suicide an appealing alternative in in the first place? Uh, Dr. Wynn, maybe you'd want to answer that. Sure. I, in the society that we live in, we treasure autonomy and in control. So with the bill of having physician suicide gives the people a false notion that they're in control and the autonomy. I would say, too, from the perspective of a psychiatrist, most people that entertain suicidal thoughts or suicidal intentions don't necessarily want to die. They're not embracing death as some sort of good. What they want is to escape what they perceive to be intolerable suffering, either in the present or, I would say, in the case of someone like Brittany Maynard, anticipating that their suffering in the future will be something that they will be unable to bear. And from my point of view as a psychiatrist, one of the things that we need to do to help individuals in those circumstances is to help them to see that while they may be suffering right now, this is not the right way in which to proceed. This is not the only escape hatch, that there are treatments available for their depression, that in the case of a terminal illness, there is good hospice and good palliative care treatment such that they, they need not expect to 
die in intolerable pain or die in a way that they perceive will be completely undignified. We're going to get into a few specifics of that in just a bit, but Tim, I'd like to ask you this. What exactly does physician-assisted suicide involve? Uh, you've had a chance to look at the, the legal and the essentially practical side of it. What happens in this? This is not a Dr. Kevorkian uh, scenario, is it? No. So in the instance of the California bill that has just been introduced, this would be a patient going to a doctor, a doctor that they may not know well, that and ask them uh, to determine that they've got six months or less to live. And two doctors would have to, uh, under the way the law is written or the bill is written, would have to agree. There is, that sounds a lot stricter than it actually is, but uh, those doctors would then uh, be able to prescribe that patient a lethal overdose of a drug for the purpose of that patient, the individual, then taking that uh, overdose you know, that will result in their death. Uh, that's the way the Oregon-style model of the law is written. Uh, it has been in existence in Oregon for uh, a number of years, since 1999, I believe. We have seen a number of complications and problems arise from it, everything from uh, individuals that, uh, with a 40-year history of psychiatric clinical depression, to being uh, given this lethal overdose, to an uh, individual woman who was denied a chemotherapy treatment by her uh, insurance company, but instead offered for them to pay for, amongst other things, assisted suicide, the assisted suicide prescription. And that's how they've modeled uh, the California law as we see it uh, introduced uh, in the state Senate uh, this year by uh, Senators Bill Monning uh, from the Central Coast and Lois Wolk, who represents uh, portions of Northern California. Well, is there an actual danger of this being seen as a cost-effective measure? That's pretty Orwellian. Yeah, I think that that's, when you look at a lot of the uh, arguments that have been put out there, in fact, uh, one of the, when this bill was introduced uh, back in 2006 and subsequently defeated, Orange County State Senator Joe Dunn, who was in charge of the Senate Judiciary Committee at the time, uh, in his opposition vote uh, to the bill in in the committee, uh, he indicated that uh, cost could be something in the future that would be considered, and that was not something that he was comfortable with because while he may be sure of the intentions of his colleagues at that time with the bill, uh, he could not speak the same for future legislators uh, or particularly in a, co- a very cost-conscious uh, health care system. So that was one of the concerns he outlined, and I, I think you hear a lot of that coming from the disability rights community and others, quite frankly, today in their arguments against assisted suicide. For those of you who have just joined us, this is AM1000, Orange County Catholic Radio, and we're discussing physician-assisted suicide with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Dr. Vincent Wynn, and Tim Rosales. We've talked so far mostly about the patient's side of this, but what does this do to doctors' Hippocratic oaths, doctors Nguyen and Cariotti? Well, we know that most physicians certainly still oppose the notion of getting involved in assisted suicide, either individually or collectively as a profession. The California Medical Association has voiced strong reservations about this Assembly Bill 128 and and prior efforts as well to legalize assisted suicide in the state. The American Medical Association has a long history of opposing assisted suicide. And this goes all the way back to, as you mentioned, the Hippocratic Oath. 
which have a, has a specific line in it that prohibits the Hippocratic doctor from administering a deadly drug, basically getting involved in assisted suicide. And the reason for that is very clear if you understand the ends and purposes of medicine. What is the medical enterprise about? It's about health, healing, and well-being. The ends or goals of medicine are to uh, try to help people to heal and not take someone who's healthy and, and do something to make them worse. And certainly towards the end of life, uh, palliative care and other aspects of medicine, we have to recognize that death is going to happen eventually. But we don't aim at or embrace death as some sort of good. We try to help people live well to the end of their days and then die well in their last days. But this idea of physicians uh, basically becoming killers is really anathema to everything that medicine has stood for uh, in the West for the last 2,500 years. Yeah, from my perspective as a palliative care physician is, you know, the role of the physician is there to, is to benefit the sick. And by promoting physician suicide, it certainly changes the culture and ch changes the role of the physician from being the healer to the killer. And, and it also, I think, will very much destroy or at least undermine the patient-physician relationship where patients come to us, trust us that we're going to do everything we can to provide the best care possible to our patient. And having this alternative option, it leaves a lot of unknowns. And oftentimes, if it's a lot easier, as you can imagine, to take the path of least resistance for patients who we don't want to take care of anymore, people who just cost too much and time, spend too much time, and I'm really pressured. I mean, I can see the slippery slope from there. And we have to be very, very careful when it comes to this. And the role of the physician, again, is as a consoler, a healer, and we're there to, to be with the patient and family during the course of the illness. And this is what we're called to be as physicians. I can also see just an absolute swamp of liability issues arising from all this, a uh, law that has not been written or even dreamed of so far. Sure. Well, one of the issues that, that I see, Dr. Nguyen mentioned uh, what I think is a very real practical slippery slope in terms of how patients trust their physicians, what is the motivation of my physician when he's suggesting or making a recommendation. But, but legally, I see also a relentlessly logical slippery slope. What I mean by that is once we enshrine in law the principle that under some circumstances, suicide is acceptable or suicide is a reasonable solution to life's difficulties or life's problems, then the fences that we try to erect around it, like the ones in this law, you have to be 18 years old, you have to have mental capacity, you have to have six months or less uh, to live, according to two physicians. Those laws are going to, or those, those restrictions are going to be eventually unmasked as arbitrary, right? Which is exactly what's happened in countries like uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, where the, the opening wedge was assisted suicide allowed under some narrowly defined circumstances and then moving from there to involuntary euthanasia. Please stay with us. When we come back, we'll be talking more about assisted suicide with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Dr. Vincent Wynn, and Tim Rosales. This is AM1000, Orange County Catholic Radio. 
Orange County Catholic newspaper is now available for weekly home delivery. The official newspaper of the Diocese of Orange seeks to illuminate and animate the journey of faith for Catholics within the Diocese of Orange. Through timely sharing of news, commentary, and feature content in an engaging, accessible, and compelling format, please call 1-877-627-7009 or visit OCCatholic.com to subscribe. Welcome back to Orange County Catholic Radio, AM 1000. We are here discussing the subject of physician-assisted suicide with Dr. Aaron Cariotti, Dr. Vincent Wynn, and Tim Rosales. We've been using the term slippery slope for a while here in, in several different meanings. I found a quote from the former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, who supported, uh, if you can believe it, eugenics in his time. For those he called degenerate offspring, uh, he said three generations of imbeciles are enough. Now, once we start talking about suicide for people who are able and willing to, this is the wrong word, but prescribe it for themselves, would it be out of the realm of possibility that we might even be straying into the area of eugenics? Absolutely. You know, going back to why this is such a popular topic is people, when they think about death and dying, it conjures up pictures of fears, fears of losing control, fears of what the unknown, fear of being a burden to their family, fear of breaking their heart, fear of suffering. So there's so much fear. And so it, isn't it great to capture people's fear and and expand this even further? So, you know, what society will tell us is one thing, but in the practical reason in, in what we do in palliative medicine is to address those fears, fears and to shift away from these fears that, that they cannot control to things that they can control, um, such as, you know, being utilizing this time to be assured that they're going to be cared for by the best medicine possible to help guide them through their suffering or, or to what pain may lay ahead. And when we talk about pain, we're not talking about just the physical pain, but we gotta remember the whole dimension of a person which can constitute their emotional, their psychological, their social, and a spiritual perspective. What medicine has done so well is we focus so much on the physical, but we forget about the other four components. So from the palliative care and the hospice holistic approach to medicine is we for, we do not forget about the person and their extended family who are going through this serious illness. And when we push for physician-assisted suicide, we're not alleviating the suffering from the patient, but we're alleviating the patient who is suffering. So I just want to leave that as a little piece that I, maybe Aaron, you could jump yeah, into. Yeah, I can perhaps comment on some of the social dimensions that you raise with the, this issue of eugenics. There's a strong strain in, in American history, a very ugly strain of this sort of thinking that remains alive and well today, and, and in many respects is part of what is driving this push for assisted suicide. And I think it's important that we get past this notion that people are making an entirely private choice that won't affect anyone else. It's just between me and my physician, or me and my family and my physician. We know from research on suicide that this is not the case, that suicide has social effects, especially for widely publicized suicide. So we can go back to the well-known case of Brittany Maynard. This was a woman whose death was, in some sense, uh, romanticized. It was publicized widely. 
And what we know about suicide is that there's a sort of social contagion effect to it. You know, when someone like Maynard says that my life under these circumstances is not not worth living, or when the laws of Oregon or Washington say lives under certain circumstances are not worth living, that law is a teacher. And that example set by people who avail themselves of that option also is a teacher. So other vulnerable individuals, young individuals that are contemplating suicide, people that are suffering from psychiatric disorders that may incline them to think about suicide, they are going to be impacted by that. This has been well-researched and well-studied. It goes by the name of the Werther effect, which goes back to a novel written in the 19th century by the German author Goethe, who depicted in this story the suicide of a young man using a pistol. And what they found in Germany after it was published is all kinds of young men whose hearts were broken, thwarted love, committing suicide using the same means. And again and again since then, over the last 150 years, this has been studied by social scientists and found to be the case that suicides do set an example that's followed by other people. All you have to do is take a walk on the Golden Gate Bridge to know that. For those of you that have just joined us, this is AM1000, Orange County Catholic Radio. We're discussing physician-assisted suicide. John Paul II, Pope John Paul II, was cited uh, at the end of his life as providing an excellent example of what it is to have a good death, to die with real dignity. What good can come out of seeing a terminal illness out to its very end? I have witnessed healing in the face of no curing. I mean, this is an opportunity, this is a silver lining that we don't see. People think of death as something that is so finalized, but it's not. It is also an opportunity, a time of healing, a time of reconciliation, a time for patients and family to come together to say, look, I love you, and to say, Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you for putting up with me for all these years. (laughs) And this is a time of reconciliation, to be able to say, look, forgive me for the time that I have not been the best dad in the world. And allowing your your family to, to say, look, we haven't been the same too, but would you forgive us? So I have so many of these experiences, and, and I guess those experiences are my teachers. And I feel that it's my obligation to share these good news to those patients who are going through their suffering, feeling that there's no hope and how can anything be good out of this? There is so much healing. And death isn't, after a person dies, it doesn't stop. But there's also the family who are living post-death, that the person's death, and they need to continue to heal as well. I think suicide takes that opportunity for the patient and family to completely heal. And let's guess for the family, because let's say you suicide, you do something, but there, there's still that lingering ugliness that, that still continues after a person dies. And again, I speak from my own experience, speaking for caring for thousands of patients over the last 20 plus years who have gone through this and who have asked me to help them ease their pain and burden um, in their um, journey. I imagine suicide could actually introduce a trauma into the family uh, that, that would not have been there had the person lived out his days to the end. Oh, it certainly does. I, re- I recall a recent case of an individual who came to me requesting physician-assisted suicide and, and believing that he might find someone at my institution to help him. And uh, when we uh, disabused him of, of that notion, we had a meeting with his family, and, and his estranged one of his estranged children told him very clearly that, Dad, if you do this, we're never going to get over it. Suicide tears at human relationships. It tears at the social fabric. It is a violent act. It's not a sort of peaceful 
way of dealing with difficulties at the end of life. And you mentioned John Paul II. I think he's a marvelous example of the Catholic Church's balanced view of how to approach end-of-life care, because I think even Catholics have mistaken notions in one or another direction. So on the one hand, some Catholics mistakenly believe a notion that I like to call vitalism. That means that I need to avail myself of any and all medical interventions and try to live as long as I as I possibly can, even if those interventions have very little chance of success. And that's not, in fact, what the Church teaches. You can contrast that with, on the other end of the spectrum, a sort of quality-of-life ethic that says, well, gee, if I'm impaired in some way or disabled in some way, then, and the quality of my life is, is something that I perceive to be too poor, then let's go ahead and just do something active to end it, overdose on a barbiturate. And the church's position is, is in between there, that we do maintain some autonomy at the end of life, that we do have the choice to forego useless or excessively burdensome medical treatments. And that's precisely what John Paul II did. He pushed to the end of his capacity. He continued to, uh, to be a witness to how to suffer well and how to be a shepherd and a leader, even when the effects of the Parkinson's began to manifest. On the other hand, in his last days, when his infections and and other problems began to overwhelm his body, he chose uh, not to pursue excessively burdensome treatments in the hospital, but to retire to his apartment and die at home uh, in prayer and in the company of his closest collaborators. This beautiful witness to a good death as Catholics envision it. One of the reasons we're discussing this subject today is there is currently a bill before the California state legislature that would mandate physician-assisted suicide in the state of California, uh, much like it is in Oregon now. We have Tim Rosales on the telephone. He is a representative of Californians Against Assisted Suicide. Tell us a little bit about what sort of political and popular support or lack of support that this bill has uh, in the medical community and in the wider community. Sure. I think that's a great question. And I wanted to add that nothing in the bill that's been proposed in California would require that family be present or even notified if someone requests uh, a lethal overdose from their physician. In California, there has been previous attempts to legalize assisted suicide back in 2006, 2007, 1999, and then there was a ballot measure back in 1992. All of those efforts have failed due to bipartisan opposition, both from Democrats and Republicans. This year, legislation has been introduced. It is sponsored by two legislators that represent uh, the Central Coast and Northern part of California. It is sponsored by an organization called Compassion and Choices, which is formerly the Hemlock Society. And they are trying to capitalize on the recent news and publicity surrounding the Brittany Maynard death and uh, her her well-publicized situation. There is some support in the legislature right now. Uh, there are a handful of co-authors, uh, but certainly I think that the those on the opposed side and the opposition, which includes organizations like the California Medical Association, the Association of Southern California and Northern California Oncologists, uh, the vast majority of disability rights organizations, and, you know, of course, faith-based organizations such as the uh, California Catholic Conference, uh, also Catholic Hospitals, and those types of organizations are all have all come together in opposition to this uh, current legislation. 
certainly the proponents have a lot of money and a lot of resources on their side. I think that those of us on the opposed side have strength in numbers and can uh, be very effective reaching out to our uh, legislators, you know, our state assembly members and state senators that represent each of us. But I think we're in for a fight, and we really need to be, I think, focused and well-coordinated and also get the message out. And that's why I appreciate you having all of us on uh, your program today. Well, Tim, thank you very much for being on with us. I'd also like to thank Drs. Aaron Cariotti and Vincent Wynn for being kind enough to join us today with their thoughts. We'll likely visit this again as the bill nears a vote. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is Orange County Catholic Radio, and we're back with Bob and Lisa Durham, who are veteran facilitators with Marriage Encounter. Welcome, and thanks so much for coming down to be with us here in the studio today. Thank you. Now, lots of us have heard about Marriage Encounter, but many of us really don't know what it is or how it works. So you get to tell us. Tell us how it got started and uh, what the process is. The weekend was started in 1952 with a young Spanish priest, Father Gabriel Calvo, who began developing a series of conferences for married couples and working on learning how to live an honest relationship and a sacramental relationship. And for years it was presented over in Spain and then it got brought to the United States and then it spread with the help of Father Gallagher here in New York, it spread through the United States. So it had a heyday in probably the late 70s, early 80s. Many couples probably remember seeing the stickers and that sort of thing at that time period. And then it's kind of um, taken a lower lower profile, but we're, we're hoping to revive it and, and bring it back and make it vibrant again. Currently, we're putting on about five weekends a year. Now, these are, these are weekends, right? Yes, right. Okay. They are weekends. Um, we offer two uh, Friday night through Sunday afternoon weekends, uh, and then we have one weekend in July, which is a non-residential weekend uh, where the couples go home at night, uh, and so we squeeze it all into a Saturday and Sunday session. However, you can see we've been around from, uh, forever, but back in the, uh, the early days, um, back then uh, they were giving four to five weekends a month and we're now giving five a year so we're trying to give it a little jump start yeah good for schedule for everybody now this is not a program is it not for marriages that are in trouble necessarily it, it can be beneficial even if your marriage is uh, very long-standing and very strong is that correct absolutely a lot of our couples come in with uh, very strong marriages and figure out by the end of the weekend that uh, they have basically fallen in love again, that they are, that their marriages have gotten better, that they're more connected to, to God, to the church. In fact, Lisa showed me a statistic that uh, 80% of the couples that attend a marriage encounter uh, weekend become more involved in their parishes, in the church, in uh, the lay ministries and things like that. So it's a really positive uh, thing for the church as well as for the couple. However, again, it's not for couples who are really having come across uh, hard times and are, are talking the D word already and, and that sort of thing. But couples that are starting to argue a lot and having disillusionments and things like that come on the weekend. And uh, we've been told after the weekend by some couples that didn't want to tell anybody, but they 
were talking divorce and that they'd found their best friend again. So it's it's a really positive experience. Well, if you're in the doldrums, you know, that where you get up in the morning and look at one another and say, hmm, so this is all there is. If you have that opportunity to go on the weekend and ignite the spark back in your romance, it's, it's really special and wonderful. If you're just joining us, this is AM1000, Orange County Catholic Radio. We are discussing marriage encounter with Bob and Lisa Durham. Walk me through a typical weekend. I'm not necessarily step by step, but what, you know, if I attend a weekend with my spouse, what am I going to see and what am I going to be doing? We're going to start Friday night with a presentation. There will be three couples and a priest who present the weekend. So you'll start Friday evening with a couple of presentations and you'll start to discuss the topic of feelings and feelings in marriages and relationships. And then you come back on Saturday morning and you'll have meals together and you'll go through many more presentations. We'll give you writing exercises and um, we'll conclude the weekend with mass, which is really special. Excellent. Well, now there is a very strong faith-based component to the weekend. Tell me about that. Marriage Encounter is delivered in, in several different faiths. Um, and you don't necessarily have to be Catholic to attend the weekend. However, we do present the weekend uh, in the Catholic faith expression. And so anyone can attend the weekend. However, we don't apologize for teaching the weekend in the, in the Catholic faith expression. Well, so, there's a priest present. So you, you automatically have that sense of Catholicism right there. But we do reference scriptures and God's plan for a marriage. And we do discuss the concept of a sacrament. Many people don't realize that their marriage is a sacrament. So I think that's kind of the, the faith aspect to it. But the weekend is really um, mostly about just improving their marriage and the Catholicism aspect of it is kind of background to it. It is certainly discussed, and uh, we even talk about uh, the wedding at Cana being the, f- the first miracle that Jesus performed, uh, maybe with a little coaxing from his mother, but um, that was uh, his first miracle and how important uh, marriage must be. Well, what sort of practical, real-world ideas for a better marriage do people come away from the weekend with? Well, you learn how to communicate. On the weekend, it's a communication technique that we teach the couples. So you come away with a, a method of communication. Um, one thing I know that we learned on the weekend is that to love is a decision. So there are, there may be some days that I'm not especially happy with something that Bob has done. So I, I get up and, and I may say to him, you know, today I'm making a decision to love you. Yeah. <laughs> right this minute, I'm making the decision to love you. But it puts that spin and kind of that humor in it and that, you know, it lightens it up and, and we're able to go forward and to communicate better with one another. And I think most marriages and most relationships, it is all about communication. I have talked to people that have gone through Marriage Encounter Weekends and they say, gosh, it was wonderful. I want to do it again. Do you see a lot of people doing that? We do. Yes. Um, a lot of couples will come back uh, basically to reignite that spark that they had on their first weekend. They, they go on the weekend and uh, it's, it's a wonderful experience and they kind of fall away from some of the uh, tools we give them and uh, kind of lose, lose sight of, uh, of that happy feeling that they had when they left. So they'll come back again just to reignite it and uh, get it going again. And you know, I'll tell you on the weekend, we have couples come in on Friday night and they look nervous and they look, you know, really a, a lot of them, if they're like us, had arguments 
on the way there. Maybe they didn't really want to come. One of them didn't want to be there. You know, they're practically sitting with their backs to each other the first uh, session. And then by the end of the weekend, you know, they're holding hands and arms wrapped around each other and laughing and whispering to each other. And, looking like newlyweds. Uh, looking like newlyweds. Looking like they're they're dating. But did that happen to the two of you on your, uh, on your first marriage encounter weekend? <gasps> oh, <laughs> yes, it did. We literally had had a huge argument before we even arrived at the weekend. We were barely speaking to one another. And by the time the weekend ended, we were best friends. We remembered why we married one another, what it was that had attracted each other to one another. It was it was spectacular. And yes, you come off the weekend, it's a kind of protected environment. You go back to everyday life and that, you know, can kind of derail you. But we continue to use the communication technique that we were taught and it it keeps our marriage fresh and, and we learn things about one another that we didn't know before. And and how after twelve years of marriage, how do you get to that point? There still is. We we just celebrated our thirtieth anniversary yesterday and yeah, congratulations. Thank, thank you. you. And we're still learning things about one another. Yeah, I, I remember the, the first night of the weekend, the priest uh, said, you know, this kind of an introduction thing. He was saying that this is a, a weekend for couples with good marriages. And we were in such a bad place walking in. I turned to Lisa and I said, so what are we going to do? Get up and walk out now? We're pretty much stuck. Uh-huh. And uh, by the end of the weekend, I was grinning and uh, just found, found my best incredible. friend again. It was really cool. Wonderful. Well, tell me some of the nuts and bolts of the weekends. For instance, how much does it cost? Where do you go? What do you have to bring? What people you need to contact to get everything set up? Four of our five weekends are held at a hotel in Santa Ana off the freeway. Nice area of, of Santa Ana. 55 freeway. Off the 55 freeway. And Dyer. Uh, and Dyer. It is a nice facility. At the hotel, we provide breakfast and lunch on, on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, we also provide dinner on Saturday night. You can go to the Thank website, you. M-E, and that's M as in Mary and E as in Echo, dot org, to sign up for the weekend if you'd like. We do have the OCWWME.org. That'll give you the weekends that are uh, offered in Orange County. They are offered all over the country. They are offered in other faith expressions. So if you go to WWME.org, you can find uh, maybe the Lutheran weekend or something of that nature nature, if that would make you feel more comfortable. But you can go there and sign up. You can contact John and Maggie Lee. Their phone number is area code 714-873-5136. And that's John and Maggie Lee. And you can talk to them and ask them questions. Um, As far as what to bring, bring your spouse. That's good. And really, that's all you need to bring. Don't bring a tennis racket. Not going to have time for tennis. No. Don't bring your books. You won't have time for reading. Don't bring your laptop. We're going to keep you busy. Uh, so you don't need to uh, bring anything with you. Just bring yourselves. As far as the attire for the weekend, it's completely casual. Dress in layers people, for comfort. People wear shorts and tank tops. People wear business casual. Whatever you want to wear is fine with us. We don't care. We do celebrate Mass on Sunday, and some people like to get a little bit dressed up for that. So uh, come. You're going to be sitting in a room for a lot of t- a lot of hours, so come comfortable, and uh, that's fine with us. As far as the cost of the weekend, uh, we ask for a $90 application fee up front. It's non-refundable. Um, it is non-refundable, and uh, that is 
basically the hook to get people to come uh, because we, for quite some time, we were charging a lot less than that and people were Canceling. just not showing up. Thank you, Lisa and Bob Durham, for taking time out of your day to come down and tell us about Marriage Encounter, very worthwhile ministry. Uh, once again, if you uh, want to check that out on the uh, internet, it's ocwme.org. When we return, we'll learn a little more about California's newest candidate for sainthood. County Catholic Radio is made possible by the generous support to the Orange Catholic Foundation, an independent not-for-profit organization raising funds to support the mission of the Catholic Church in the Diocese of Orange. To learn more about their vision, their mission, and about upcoming events, visit online www.orangecatholicfoundation.org. That's orangecatholicfoundation.org. The Orange County Catholic Newspaper is now available for weekly home delivery. The official newspaper of the Diocese of Orange seeks to illuminate and animate the journey of faith for Catholics within the Diocese of Orange. Through timely sharing of news, commentary, and feature content in an engaging, accessible, and compelling format, please call 1-877-627-7009 or visit OCCatholic.com to subscribe. Welcome back to AM1000, Orange County Catholic Radio. I'm Patrick Mott, and we're on the phone with Monsignor Art Holquin, who, among other titles, is the pastor and rector emeritus of Mission Basilica San Juan Capistrano, and in that position is the 34th successor of Father Junipero Serra. You may recall that Pope Francis, only a few days ago, said that he would preside over the canonization of Father Serra when he comes to Washington, D.C. in September. So California is about to get a brand new saint. Monsignor Holquin, this has got to be exciting stuff for not just the Mission Parish, but for the entire town of San Juan Capistrano, yes? Well, you're absolutely correct, Pat, and I must be very candid. This announcement took not only myself, but all of us by surprise, and in some sense, it is quintessential Pope Francis. He has a way of surprising us with delightful news, and this was indeed delightful news for us, of course, here at Mission San Juan Capistrano, which is the seventh mission that Father Sarah himself established out of the nine of the 21 that he himself established. And as the historic center of Orange County here in San Juan Capistrano, really the whole community is absolutely delighted. Children in, in California schools, public and private schools, parochial schools, learn about the missions in the fourth grade, but I'm not sure they come away with uh, all that much about Padre Serra himself. What sort of a guy was Father Junipero Serra? First of all, in terms of the curriculum, that has been developed over the last 10, 11 years since I've arrived here, 
both uh, our executive director of the mission and myself have really done as much as possible to highlight the character of Father Sarah. Uh, the children don't just learn how to build our mission with small little sugar cubes. <laughs> and I think members of our audience could possibly remember when they did that. But we do try to focus on the personality of Father Sarah. And for anyone interested in history, they know that we are dealing here with a man of great passion, a man of great courage, focus and deliberation. He was a man that, first of all, was on fire for the gospel of Christ. And in my own reading and reflection, which obviously occurred when I became pastor in 2003, my estimation of this man increased incrementally. I mean, he encapsulated in his personality uh, what has become known as his motto, always forward, never go backward, and to love God. For those of you just joining us, uh, we're talking to Monsignor Art Holquin on Orange County Catholic Radio. He is telling us about Padre Junipero Serra, whom Pope Francis is going to be canonizing in September. It's a, a little disappointing, I imagine, that uh, the Pope couldn't make it all the way out to California for the canonization ceremony. His schedule would not permit it. But Washington, D.C. is not an illogical choice because of one statue in that city. Tell us about that. Yes, absolutely. As many folks know, each of the states is privileged to have two statues in the Congressional Statuary Hall that exemplify their state. And Father Sarah was chosen by the state of California as its representative personality. I have since come to understand that the second statue is uh, President Ronald Reagan. So having his statue there in our nation's capital, together with the fact I think folks need to remember Pope Francis is 78 years old. And to extend this pastoral visit to the West Coast at somewhat the last moment, which within the last, you know, six months or so, would be a Herculean task of preparation. So they've already added Washington, D.C. and New York, and it's my sense that the canonization probably will take place at the Basilica Shrine of the Immaculate Conception in Washington, D.C., well, how is Padre Serra's influence seen and felt in this area, in Orange County, even today? He did so much groundbreaking foundational work. Well, because of the fact that mission studies are part of uh, both public and private school curriculum, the name Serra, of course, is not unknown to California students that grow to maturity. And so we all know about Father Sarah, and we know about his founding of the missions. And I believe, really, quite objectively, the influence that he had on the indigenous people of this land, but primarily, from my perspective, as a man of faith, and as our Holy Father refers to him, as the great evangelizer of the West, that 
is his ultimate legacy. He was one who was passionate about sharing the story of Jesus and embracing as many as possible into the fold of the Church. He baptized some 6,000 neophytes himself, confirmed about 5,000 for us as Roman Catholics. He is indeed someone who has left his lasting mark and legacy here in California. Another Herculean task, if you will. There are a lot of indigenous people in this area who are very happy about the fact that uh, Father Sarah is being canonized. They point to their ancestors as people that he uh, originally baptized, brought into the faith. There are others that are not as happy about it. Tell us a little bit about that and why, and put it into a bit of perspective. Yes, absolutely. When I came to the mission in 2003, I got to meet some of the descendants of the original individuals who the indigenous Americans of this land who were here prior to the arrival of the Spanish colonization and Father Sarah himself, members of the Ahashaman tribe. And I heard the, the stories that were passed down through oral tradition of the great love that so many had for Father Sarah, the original missionaries. However, I also heard the stories of those who, quite frankly, viewed the whole process of colonization as one of a massive and abusive infringement uh, and violation of a culture that was already present here, and the introduction of European diseases brought about, especially with the Spanish colonization, the loss of some 30% of the original Native American population here. And yes, there are those who are objecting to the canonization by stating that the mission system was abusive, and some go so far as to state that it was enslaving of the the indigenous people. I think we need to make a distinction between oral history or what may sound a bit pejorative on my part, but mission myth and actual fact, historical fact. And we have historians who certainly will state that the missionaries were not free from the taint of sin, but certainly to point the finger at Sarah and to state that he was somehow the uh, the instrument for abuse and mistreatment of the of the Indians over and beyond what was common during the eighteenth century in terms of somewhat of a a paternalistic attitude toward the indigenous people, and hence there was some corporal punishment, etc. But to extrapolate from that and to say that Father Sarah was the great enslaver of the Indians, I think goes beyond the facts of history.
Well, Monsignor Art Holquin, thank you so much for joining us today. You are the 34th successor of Padre Junipero Serra. We'll definitely be following this story, uh, and come September, we will celebrate with all of you in San Juan Capistrano. And thanks to all our listeners for being with us for another edition of Orange County Catholic Radio. Please join us again next week and every Thursday at 11 a.m. right here on AM 1000. I'm Patrick Mott. Good afternoon. Good afternoon.